coming Sunday. And if you know people that are wondering about what's going on in the world, tonight would be a really good one for them to watch because Psalm 2 is very much related to what I'll be talking about on Sunday. You'll see in a second. Uh, and you'll also see, I think, in a few minutes why we didn't skip over Psalm 2, where we just did Psalm 1. I said, we're only going to do like 15, 20 of the Psalms. Why would we do Psalm 2? Well, it is a pivotal Psalm uh, in the book of Psalms. So you'll see why we couldn't skip Psalm 2. Not that all the Psalms are important, but um, I think you'll see why it's uh, very, very uh, pertinent that we uh, look at this Psalm tonight as we look at these selections. So turn with me to Psalm chapter 2. We did an overview of Psalms and, and covered Psalm chapter 1 last week. So if you want to catch the overview, and, and there are some things that are important to understand about how the Psalms are broken up and the, um, the five different books and uh, their, their poetry in nature, but not like our poetry, which is based on meter and rhyme and things like that. But, um, but you can go back and, and watch uh, from last week and uh, also see that foundational start of the first chapter. But let's uh, pick it up with Psalm chapter 2, starting with verse 1. Why do the nations rage, and the peoples plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces, and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and in distress and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are those who put their trust in him. Let's pray. Father, we love those closing words. Blessed are those who put their trust in you. Lord, I suppose everyone is here tonight in this room and online because they put their trust in you. They're putting their life in your hands. They're putting eternal life in your hands. They're putting this day, even this evening, in your hands. But Lord, if there's one even watching online that's just stumbled onto our website that hasn't put their trust in you, that they would tonight. And Lord, we see the maddening times we live in. And Lord, we see that these things are careening to the very conclusion that we see here in Psalm 2. But Lord, we pray that none of these things would unsettle us. But Lord, we become more and more settled by being in communion with you. We pray, Lord, tonight in this room, in this message, in this study, Lord, that your presence would be here. Your peace would be present. And the power of the Holy Spirit would be present. Lord, I need all of those things. 
and so do my brothers and sisters. And so we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We started last week with Psalm chapter 1, which conveyed the striking contrast between the one that willingly chooses, going back to Psalm chapter 1, the one that willingly chooses to delight in the law of the Lord, the Torah of Adonai in the Hebrew, to follow his counsel, to abide in his word and in his grace. And that same one rejects the world's values, the world's temptations, the world's traps. And connected to all of that is the promise that the one who delights in the Lord and rejects the things of this world is going to be fruitful. They're going to flourish. There's a guarantee of someday being part of the eternal congregation of God. Much of that congregation is already seated. There's still seats are waiting for us. Amen? Much of the congregation in heaven is already seated. There's a few seats. I hope everyone in here has a seat with your name on it. Conversely, there was the strong warning back in chapter 1 that rejecting the law of God and the truth of God will result in being carried away like the wind, like the chaff, ultimately brought into judgment and eternally perishing in sin in the judgment of God. Now, as we open chapter 2, the focus shifts from the individual's in this world, with the primary focus being the king who will someday rule over all other kings, all over nations, all other nations, all individuals. And this king will crush thousands of years, about 6,000 years, of rebellion and hatred that the world has directed at God. And over the last 2,000 years, at the Son of God. This psalm has been called, you may have heard this before, but if you haven't, this psalm has been called the drama of the ages. This psalm, Psalm chapter 2. The drama of the ages. That makes it pretty important to look at. And it, the drama is mankind's rebellion. It started in the Garden of Eden. Mankind's rebellion towards God that will eventually end with every knee bowing before God. You know, you've seen these memes, how it started, how it's going. This one's how it started, how it ends. If you're taking notes, you see the title this morning or this evening. <laughs> They're running together for me. Uh, the, the tri- this evening, uh, the triumphant king. And what's... Um, really cool about this passage, we, we, um, we wouldn't have known. Uh, this psalm is written, it was written anonymously. The psalm doesn't identify the author, but in Acts chapter 4, which we're going to look at in just a bit, so uh, we'll look at it together. But in Acts chapter 4, it tributes this psalm to David. That David wrote it. So we know that because the apostles Maybe Jesus told them specifically, the Holy Spirit impressed upon them, but we know that uh, it is attributed to David in Acts chapter 4. So uh, you have Israel's greatest king writing about the king of kings. 
David, the greatest Israel, king of Israel, writing about the king of kings. Now Psalm 1 has been happening. If you look at those 12 verses, Psalm 1 has been happening in individual lives, especially the first few verses. Um, Psalm 1, specifically those first few verses, which we'll probably spend the majority of our time kind of looking at understanding what happened in these first few verses and then what God's going to do about it, what he has been doing about it. But Psalm 1's been happening in individual lives ever since the fall in the garden. Some people choosing to yield to God and some choosing to cling to this world. To hold on to it as tight as they can. I, I don't want to let go of this world. Now Psalm 2 certainly um, has some of that pivotal choice that we saw back in chapter 1 in view, but some of what's laid out in these verses, particularly um, in the first, well actually I would say is laid out throughout the chapter, and by the way the chapter has 12 verses versus we saw uh, Psalm 1 only has 6 verses, so twice as many verses as last week, but uh, what's laid out in these verses is speaking of things that have happened things that continue to happen, and some really big things that will happen. Chapter 2 reveals this constant satanic effort of the ungodly nations and the kingdoms and the system of this world that is repeatedly attempting constantly attempting to do what? To defeat God which is not possible but the world keeps trying and to rid this world of his son and the accountability of his son and accountability to his son so the world system, it's satanically driven it's Satan himself behind it saying what can we do to get rid of this accountability to God and specifically the Son of God. And in the past and right now in the present and certainly in the future, all of these attempts have been, are being, and will be colossal failures. You can shake your fist at God. You can come at him any way you want. But in the end, he'll still be on the throne. Amen? Jesus is not going to be moved. But this world is blinded to and oblivious to all the prior failures. All the prior failures. You know, all the efforts that the world's taken on to date and will continue to take on will come crashing down in one final failure when the wrath of God is poured out. Coinciding with this will be the glorious coronation of Jesus, the Messiah, the King, and he will then rule and reign and righteousness over this. That the world will be remade at that point. Completely remade. Eventually, 
this will all come to pass. But it's all moving, and I would say accelerating, in our lifetime. Everything I'll be talking about this Sunday, and I, I by the way, I, I don't know why, and then I was in, I'm, I'm now in the book of Jeremiah, my personal study, and um, I didn't plan on, I didn't plan on this Sunday's message being prophecy-related and Psalm 2, which is very prophecy-related, falling in the same week, but God must have known that all of us need a double dose of this. And I got a triple dose because what I was in in Jeremiah this morning, my personal study, was more of it. So the Lord was just like, just hitting me with a verily, 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 if you will. Like, you need to understand this. You need to understand this. You need to be completely focused on the fact that I'm coming back soon. But everything I'll be talking about Sunday uh, in this message, let us draw near as his return draws near, really relates to uh, Psalm 2. And I'll probably even quote a verse or two from Psalm 2 on Sunday. So uh, just a little few, few things here and there. But, but it relates to the observations that are here, the events that are listed in Psalm 2, and the prophecies that are listed in Psalm 2. And, and to the final culmination of Jesus' exaltation, when he will be exalted. Now, he already is exalted. I'm saying that the world will look upon him whom they've pierced. He will be exalted before those who say, well, I don't think he exists. And if he does exist, I wouldn't have to bow down before him. All that will change. So let's look at verses 1 through 3, because uh, verses 1 through 3 uh, are so important in laying out this chapter. And they begin with a question that you might have asked yourself at times, or you might have thought about the same question yourself. So it starts with verse 1. Why do the nations rage? And the people's plot a vain thing. You ever thought that when you're watching the news? I mean, why do they even do this? Why? Why so much violence? Why so much hatred? Why? Why so much greed? Why do the nations rage? And pl the people plot a vain thing. The NASB, if you have the NASB version, it says, Why are the nations in an uproar and the people's devising a vain thing? If you have King James, which is the greatest... I'm just kidding. Um, uh, if you have the King James version, I, I am not in that camp, but anyway. There are some versions I don't like, but... King James is not the only ordained version. But the King James Version reads, Why do the heathen, they like that word heathen, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? So not just the nations, but the, but the individuals within the nations. So Psalm 1 is still in view. The individuals, because all nations are made up of individuals, and a group of individuals bent on evil become the leadership of a nation. So why are the nations, and why are the individuals within nations, why are the leaders of nations, why are they raging? Why are they in an uproar? And why are they devising and imagining in their minds a vain thing, vanity? Why are they doing it? And do they really think that their plotting will succeed? Now you think about Satan. He actually knows he's going to be thrown in the lake of fire, and he still plots. He actually 
in one sense, at least is smarter than people. He actually knows his is going to fail and still does it anyway. A lot of other people are convinced it's not going to fail. It's a good question. It's actually a two-part or compound question. Why do they, individuals or nations, rage, which is the Hebrew word ragosh, to be in tumult, commotion, to conspire? Why do they rage? Well, that's really the headlines these days, isn't it? Raging. It's been the headlines thousands of times in world history. Lots of times. Atrocities that we can, that boggle our mind. Only a tiny percentage of world history has been peaceful. Only a small percent. There's an unrest, there's a distrust that leads to commotion and anger and rage and conspiring for what? For control. That's what they want. Control. All the conspiring is who can control other people, nations, ultimately who can control the world, who can control the oil supply, who can control Wall Street, who can control anything, government. Just look at our own nation. Half of our nation is outraged at the other half. Same as it was 160 years ago in the Civil War. I just watched an awesome documentary about Lincoln. It's, nothing's changed. Uh, well, lots of things have changed, but the heart of people haven't changed. There's many, many good things that have happened, and I'm glad that we have certain freedoms. I'm glad that slavery doesn't exist anymore and things like that. But the heart of people hasn't changed. Election cycle after election cycle is conspiring for control, grappling for control, raging for control. The question goes on, why do the nations or the people, why do the people, uh, specifically why do the nations, plot a vain thing? The Hebrew word for plot, the Hebrew word for plot means to moan, growl. It means all these things simultaneously in context. To moan, to growl, to utter, to muse, to imagine, to mutter to meditate, to devise, to plot, to speak, to roar. It sounds like any topic on Twitter. It sounds like the Pharisees, if you've been with us in, in the study of John. This is their attitude. They always grumble. Remember said that they, they, they would actually complain in a low voice, just muttering when Jesus was around. They couldn't say, they just were always plotting his death. When can we stone him? They complained about him. They moaned about him. They devised, how can we get him on the cross? Pharisees were perfect examples. Of now, the scriptures, of course, in many places, in many ways, answer this question, why do the nations rage? But here's the root of the problem that's expressed in these few passages, verses 1 through 3. Um, I put three passages up. They all are relevant. Jeremiah 17, 9. Uh, the, these are the root causes. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? As long as there's wicked hearts, there's going to be raging for control. Proverbs 1.7 For uh, fools despise wisdom and instruction. You and I don't get to call people fools, but God does. And he does call people fools that reject his wisdom now, we can say things are foolish. 
And in Proverbs 14, 16, a wise man fears and departs from evil, but a fool rages and is self-confident. Ever seen how arrogant some of our leaders are? They, they, they act like they're going to live forever. They act like whatever they do is going to work. And even if the Bible says, don't do it that way, that do it that way anyway. The Bible doesn't know what it's talking about anyway. The heart unchanged by God remains subject to evil and remains the heart of a fool. Therefore, it will follow after foolish pursuits. One of the most foolish things you can do is think you can defeat God. Think you can dethrone God. But that's what the nations are trying to do. And no matter how many attempts by nations, past and present, or individuals have attempted to defeat and dethrone the counsel of God, the wisdom of God, people retry it again and again. How many people think, you know what? It didn't work for John Jacob Astor. It didn't work for the Rockefellers. It didn't work for... Uh, Dale Car- didn't work for Carnegie. Didn't work for all. Didn't work for the titans of industry. They couldn't make themselves happy with wealth. But I bet it will work in my lifetime, right? People retry it, or to gain power, or to stay alive forever. And maybe if they put me in a zero gravity cold chamber, I remember reading an article a few years ago that uh, Google. Uh, has calculated that the real lifespan of mankind, if we get things right, is going to be over 300 years of age. And eventually they'll probably say 600, and eventually they'll probably... Remember I told you that Jeff Bezos uh, just invested in a company in Silicon Valley to, to find out, is there a way to achieve immortality? But people will keep trying again and again and again, to find some other way to achieve what God says can only be done through repentance and surrender to him. This raging and plotting against God, it goes back before the flood. It goes all the way back. Um, That's the reason the world was destroyed the first time in the first place, right? Is because the nations were raging against God He couldn't find anyone righteous left on the earth except for one tiny family. More specifically, one man named Noah. So the raging goes back before the flood. Then after the flood, we have the Tower of Babel. Man says, we're going to build our own way into the heavens. And we're going to be ascending like the Most High, just like Satan had that same mindset. And then many other times, and many other nations, and many other empires have come against God. Would you not agree with that? Many have come against God. Ones that we don't even know about, that never even show up on history, that God says, there's tons of kingdoms you didn't even know existed. That's a fact. But this passage, this passage that we're looking at, and the subsequent verses uh, here in uh, verses 2 and 3, verses 1 through 3, but they point even more specifically. So, ancient history's in view here. Even pre-flood, Tower of Babel, all that. Pharaoh and the, and the children of Israel, he was against God. He raged against the people of God, against God himself. Remember, he said, I don't know your God. I don't have to listen to your God, Pharaoh, remember? He lost that war, didn't he? 
Of course he did, right? He came out on the, the L side of the equation, the, the, the defeated side. But So we have the ancient manifestations of this in view. But more specifically, when we look at when David wrote this, which was a thousand years, David was just about a thousand years exactly before the coming of Jesus. So when David wrote this, he was mostly looking, although the past, the ancient was in view too, even the present time of David. He dealt with Philistines, for example, who hated God. But mostly the future was in view. Mostly. But it also included the ancient and the present of David's time, a thousand years before Christ. And that future fulfillment, it came to pass with the condemnation of Jesus to death on the cross, which we will be celebrating that Passover week in just a few weeks. That condemnation of Jesus was the future fulfillment that David was looking to in this passage. But it wouldn't stop there because the nation's raging will not only end at the cross, it will continue until Jesus comes finally to destroy all of his enemies. So that rebellion will continue. Many scholars believe that the wording, if you look in this text again, why do the nations rage and the people's plot a vain thing? Many scholars believe that the wording of nations refers to Gentiles and the people refers to the Jews. And I actually agree with that, and I'll show you why uh, in just a second when we turn to the book of Acts, or just a few minutes here. Um, but you can see the progression. So if you wanted to read it that way, why did the Gentiles rage, and why, to the, why did the Jews, or why do the Jews, plot a vain thing? Remember the Jews, specifically the Jewish leadership, and the kings of the world, the kings of the nations, why, did, why do they plot a vain thing, why do they rage? Uh, we can see the progression, the connection, verses 2 and 3. Look at verse 2 and uh, 3. The kings of the earth set themselves, uh, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. What begins as a question, why do the nations rage, why do the people's plot of anything, moves forward with an observation. So it asks the question, why? Then it moves from why to an observation. The kings, in our vernacular, the presidents, the prime ministers, in the ancient times, the Caesars and the pharaohs, they set themselves and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, you should know by now, if you've attended here any length, the length of time, the word anointed means the Christ in the New Testament. So the anointed, get to the New Testament in the Greek, the anointed always means the Christ. It's a title. And you can see it's capitalized in your Bible. It should be capitalized. Uh, his anointed, both capitalized. This is a title. The anointed. The anointed in the New Testament is the Christ. Now, this setting themselves against this having counsel against this coming against Christ will continue all the way to the tribulation the seven year tribulation and then it will happen one more time at the end of the millennium reign of Christ which is the thousand 
year reign of Jesus, there'll be one more final rebellion, which will be consumed by the fire of God. But when David wrote this, remember, David writes this a thousand years before Jesus comes to Bethlehem. When David wrote this, the world didn't know about the Christ. Not who he was. Now, they, they did know about a Messiah. Some people knew. Very few. Remember, by the time Jesus uh, is being born in Bethlehem, even most of the scholars in Israel weren't even looking for the Messiah. Or, or all that. I mean, some were, but uh, there's other passages that certainly speak to the coming of Jesus. Numerous ones in the book of Isaiah. There's quite a few. But in other places, too. Moses wrote of... But no one knew who the Messiah would be. No one who knew who the anointed one would be. No one knew who the Christ would be. This is a, David writes this a thousand years before Jesus comes, before the anointed one, before Jesus had come to the earth, a thousand years prior. This is written. This prophecy, though, this prophecy that he'll come or the anointed will be there and the nations and the rulers will set themselves against him, it will be fulfilled. This will be fulfilled with his death sentence and the murder of Jesus. That's when it's fulfilled. Of course, now it has been fulfilled. We're looking back now. David's writing a thousand years in advance, and we're looking two thousand years back. Does that make sense? David writes a thousand years earlier. Now we're looking two thousand years back. There's a three thousand year gap total from the time it's written to us right now. But the prophecy has commenced. Notice I said commenced. It had really been put into full motion with the death sentence and murder of Jesus. Everything David wrote about, the clock was ticking for a thousand years. When will this take place? When will this take place? Because even though the nations had raised against God, they had not raised against his son yet. That makes sense? It says his anointed. Later in the passage, it specifically says the son. Very specific. So David is getting really, the Holy Spirit gives him this granular prophecy that is really about the coming of Jesus onto the scene. And it will commence, the fulfillment begins, it doesn't end with his death on the cross or his resurrection. It is now launched forward and we're in it right now. We, we remain in it. This age of grace is 2,000 years. But it would be against the Lord and against his anointed. And I'm in agreement with scholars that believe that David's wording and his arrangement, I'm not a scholar, but I read a lot of stuff, so I hope I can absorb uh, what I can know. But um, I'm in agreement with scholars that, that agree that, or that uh, believe that David's wording and his arrangement of kings first speaks to political power, and rulers come second. The rulers kind of counsel together or um, they take counsel together that the rulers speaks to religious power. So political power and religious power coming together. You Bible scholars think I, you, might, you might have light bulbs going off. When religious power and political power come together, what might we have? Turn over to Acts chapter 4. Remember, it's uh, the apostles that identify for us, via the Holy Spirit, that 
David was the author, because again, it doesn't say that in the original. It just appears as one of the Psalms, and it doesn't accredit it to David. The apostles come along and tell us that it was David. And how do we know that? Acts chapter 4, remember the apostles had just been arrested. Peter and John had been thrown into prison. They get out, and they go have a time of worship and prayer, and pick it up with me in uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 25. Well, actually, look at, look at uh, verse 24 as well, because it's just kind of a beautiful progression. So when they had heard, they heard that, um, they raised their voices to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea that are, and all that is in them. And again, this is how puny man is compared to God. God, you created everything we can see, who by the mouth of your servant David said, that's how we now know David wrote Psalm 2. Why did the nations rage? And the people plot vain things. And the kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his, not anointed, his Christ, which means the same thing, but in the New Testament it reads as Christ. Verse 27. Now, what's awesome is the apostles give us the meaning of Psalm 2 with this commentary in verse 27. For truly against, it said that they would come against, your holy servant Jesus, now we know Jesus is the anointed, whom you anointed, the Christ, the anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, those are the Gentile kings, with the Gentiles, and the people, remember, the nations were the Gentiles, the people were the Jews, and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand purpose determined before hand to be done. This interprets the whole thing. That when the Gentile kings of Pilate and Herod gathered together with the Jewish priesthood and the religious leaders to condemn Jesus in the kangaroo court of the middle of the night, then everything commenced from that forward. It was on. From now until the tribulation period, the nations are set against Jesus. That was when the clock... Now, before that, they already hated God. They just didn't know who Jesus was. Remember, the Pharisees, they found out who Jesus was, and they wanted no part of him. They rejected that there could even be the Son of God, much less that he would be him. Go back to uh, Psalm chapter 2. So when Pilate and Herod, who, by the way, you probably know this, but if you don't, they hated each other before the day of Jesus' arraignment. They couldn't stand each other. But after they both kind of realized that the best thing to do was to kill Jesus, they became great friends from that day forward. The world can cobble together alliances in hatred of God, and specifically of Jesus. And they came together and became friends, and, and that day that Pilate made the announcement, it was in agreement with who? Caiaphas the high priest, and all the religious leaders that said, give us Barabbas, kill him, murder him because he blasphemes and calls himself God and the Son of God. And of course he was God and the Son of God and he was the anointed and they rejected all of it flat out and said, crucify him. And that became the initial blueprint. What, what David is pointing to is this would become the commencement of the blueprint of the combining of political power and religious power coming together to oppose Jesus 
And that blueprint is going to be revived like you ain't never seen when the Antichrist comes along. He will take this blueprint, and it won't be just a week. It'll be multiple years of this blueprint coming into play. Now, that apostasy of religion and um, government mixing, it's going to come to America, and it's already here. We've got a lot of false teachers in the pulpits in America already. These guys are so ready to give up the gospel, they're already giving it up. They will, they, will, they will lock arms with the federal government in this country in no time flat. Anything to kind of keep money, prestige, celebrity status, number of Instagram followers, whatever it may be. And the final effort of this satanic relationship, um, this blueprint that's been happening since that Passover week, will be, again, the rule of the Antichrist. Now, Political power and religious power, the two being in lockstep, that existed well before Jesus came. It's going to come back in our end times lifetime. That was the norm in the ancient kingdoms. You guys all understand that, right? Religious and political power being in lockstep was the norm for the first 4,000 years of world history and quite a bit in the last 2,000 years. The pharaohs, the kings of Babylon, the Greeks, many other empires were political powers that had total devotion to their gods, and on top of that, their pharaohs or their Caesars were also gods. So the whole religious political construct was all mixed together anyway. It's in the last couple hundred years of religion, politics, don't mix. Antichrist said, oh, they're going to mix. That's how we got Jesus to the cross. They, that's, how we're, that's how they think they're going to keep him from coming back and establishing his kingdom. It won't work, but the effort will be that Satan will try it anyway. And the same was found in the New World when we got to the New... It's not the New World. It was already here, but it was <laughs> due to the discovery of Europeans anyway. Uh, the Aztecs, the Incas, same thing. Their political and religion were all mixed as one. I mean, every... When they conquered people, they became human sacrifices for the religion. So it, it's been the case for a long time. It's just Satan has deceived the nations in thinking that these things are gone, when actually they've always been there and they are coming back. And by the way, the political structures of today are religious fervor in and of themselves, aren't they? Atheism is quite the religion. Communism is in and of itself something people idolize. They don't even know why sometimes. Especially young people today. Like, why are you wearing a, a sickle and a, uh, you know, like, do, you, do you know what that even means? I guess it means I won't have to work. Those are labor symbols, by the way. So you will have to work. Like a slave, if you come under that. I digress. But anyway. But David, but David is talking about an express effort of kings and rulers, the ruling elite coming together to rid the world of Jesus. It started that first week before the cross to rid the world of Jesus. They thought they had gotten rid of him when they put him in the grave. Of course, he rose from the grave. But they continued to try and extinguish any vestiges of Jesus. What happened 
that week of Jesus' death and then continued after the resurrection and all the way through the first century and right up until now, we see things like the Ottoman Empire came along, the Spanish Inquisition came along. Horrific things happened under both those endeavors. The attempt to establish just a couple of years ago, I know it's ancient news to us, but it wasn't just a couple of years ago, we saw people being beheaded right and left in North Africa and the Middle East to establish a caliphate. But today's people in today's Twitter world, that's ancient history. No, it was only like two, three years ago to establish a caliphate right in the Middle East. What you see Kim Jong-un doing in North Korea, what you see Xi Jinping doing in China, the persecution of Christians, the locking up of people, specifically the hatred against Christians and Christ and against his church and against the work of salvation, it's happening right now. This all began with the crucifixion of Jesus and continues till now. That was the commencement of it. Now by the third century, if you go back to the third century, so at that point, almost 300 years after Jesus had been crucified and rose from the dead, the Roman emperor Diocletian was in power at that time. He erected two monuments about himself. Most leaders love themselves. They love to erect things about themselves. But, but he erected two monuments by himself. He was incredibly cruel and torturing and killing Christians. Uh, but he supposed that he had defeated Christ because he set himself and set the Roman Empire against Christ and, and there in the third century he supposed that he had actually won against Christ and the followers of Christ and this was the um, this was the monument what it, re, what it read what, yeah, two of them but this is what one of them read Diocletian, Jovian, Maximian, Herculeus Caesarea is Augusti for having everywhere abolished the superstition of Christ for having ex um, extended the worship of the gods. He, he thought he had stamped out Christ and had extended or proliferated the worship of the gods. By the way, Diocletian only lived to be 68 years of age, his little vapor of a life gone. Many millions of people have been saved since then. He didn't extinguish anything. But in his self-confident, as the text says, in his self-confident mind, his arrogant mind, he thought he had defeated the anointed one, but God was laughing from the heavens, right? Verse 3, and when it, said, and when it says um, that they want to, let's, let's break their bonds in pieces. By the way, you notice that there is capitalized in your Bible? Is your, I don't know if all y'all are capitalized. And in the New King James it is. Um, which is the anointed version. But anyway, uh, let us break their bonds. It's capitalized. There is the authority and commands of the triune God. Let us make man in our image. Right? Back to the book of Genesis. There is the triune God. Let us break the bonds of the triune God. Diocletian, he did not want the constraints of God the scriptures, the Ten Commandments, the person and righteousness of Jesus. He didn't want anything that came from the triune God. Even before Jesus, as I mentioned, Pharaoh hated God. He hated the children of Israel. So did the Philistine kings. So did the Assyrians. They all hated the true and living God. But by the time we get to Pilate, 
and Herod and the high priest Caiaphas, they all want to break in pieces what they thought Jesus came to establish. That's why what they wanted to stone Jesus. They wanted to stone him to pieces to break into pieces what Jesus was coming to establish. What was Jesus coming to establish? Well, Jesus came to establish the true worship of God the Father. The true worship of God the Father. Remember he said in John chapter 4, the Father is seeking the true worshipers. Because there was a lot of false worship inside the Jewish camp, inside the Gentile camp. Lots of false worship. Jesus said, I have come to present the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. And through me you can worship the Father, but only through me can you worship the Father. Anything else you're worshiping false gods, namely yourselves. But that would come through what? Through repentance. Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of God is hand. John the Baptist said it first. Jesus said it second. Repent for the kingdom of God is hand. And then it would be through faith alone, through Christ alone. But as John said in the first chapter of John, men love darkness rather than light. So they said, we will not have this man rule over us. We will break and crucify him. Thankfully for all of us, the grave couldn't hold Jesus. Amen? Otherwise, we would be under their thumb. So what's really going on in all of the 6,000 years of history is this war against God, this invisible war, and sometimes quite visible war, but many times it's invisible with the lies and the deception and everything else. This invisible war, and, and, and in many cases visible, but Satan is the one behind the entire assault that's aimed at God but while Satan's against God, it also rages against humanity as well. And many innocent people die and are killed in, in the process. Many Christians have died for the faith. The scriptures tell us, though, in Ephesians 6:12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, and the rulers, not just the rulers of this world, but the rulers of darkness, of this age against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. You wonder why some rulers, you wonder why no one ever assassinates Kim Jong-il or Vladimir Putin? Because they have demons protecting them. Literally. They are armed men from forces of darkness. They literally have a cohort. Now, so did Nero, so did Diocletian, and eventually God says, your time is up, and they die anyway. But for their little span of time, they become little gods with Satan helping them. People really have sold their souls, if you will, for real, to have that kind of power. We know and we've discussed in numerous times, probably more times in the last six months than I have in a while, we know that we are of God and the whole world slides under the, sways under the, or lies under the sway, I combined two words, it lies under the sway of the wicked one. This world is under the sway of Satan. Remember, Satan tried to offer Jesus the kingdom of this world because he's behind. There's a satanic, satanic power behind the kingdoms of this world. Now, they're going to lose, but for a short season, God has given him some measure of great influence to pit the kingdom of the world against God and against the will of God and against the plan of God. See, the world finds, when it says break their bonds, break in pieces, cast away their cords, the world finds the word of God restrictive. Ah! The Bible says we can only be married one way. 
We won't have that. The Bible says God created the earth. I think we came from apes. I don't think that. I'm saying that I'm speaking the world. They're not my relatives. They might be somebody, but they're not. You and I, a banana and us, did not come from the same exact forefather. The world's like, you know, why is it I can't get as drunk as I want and why can't I sleep around and do all this stuff? The Bible says I can't do any of that stuff. I won't have any of it. And said, so mankind, if we... We don't want these laws. We don't want these constraints. Spurgeon said, To a graceless neck, the yoke of Christ is intolerable, but to the saved sinner it is easy and light. I would never go back to the things I used to be in bondage to. I don't want to go back. I mean, I could go back because I'm, you know, I still have a sin nature that if I didn't abide in Christ, I could fall right out. But I... Glad, thankfully, Jesus holds me and he holds you. And I wouldn't want to go back to those things. The, the, the things that God has revealed to me post... So rebellion and the assault against God, it continues. This drama of the ages continues. But how does it end? So are you going to fit all this in the last five minutes? Yes, I am. <laughs> Look at verse 4. Well, maybe seven minutes. But anyway, uh, he who sits in the heavens... How does it end? Verse 4 through 6. I'll look at these real quickly. And I... And I this is all by design, so don't... I, I, I really wanted to fo- focus on, again, so you understand what David was prophesying, what God gave to David, and understand it, because I don't believe it's been taught a lot of times, um, and people even understand it. But nevertheless, verse 4, he who sits... So here's God's response to all this. All right? You've set yourself against my son. You've set... You've kind of got the political powers, the religious powers, the satanic powers. You don't want any part of my commands. You don't want any part of my righteousness. You don't want any part of my son and his salvation. What's God's response? He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. It's not like humor laugh. It's like, who do you really think you are? You know? Who do you really think you are? That's what, that's what it is. God's like, do you really? This is, this is laughable. You actually think that, you ever seen how big earth is compared to the universe? And we're somewhere down on that tiny dot thinking that we can take on God. God's like, where did you get this idea that you could even add a second to your life, much less defeat me? So it's not humor. It's God just shaking his head. And the Lord shall hold them in derision. It's too late at some point, everyone's going to be held into accountable. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath. At some point, the wrath of God is poured out. Everyone has a line in the sand. Mankind will have a line in the sand. Individual people, nations will have a line in the sand. At some point, God says, the line has been crossed. There's no turning back. The wrath of God will be poured out. And in distress, uh, and he will distress them in his deep displeasure. At some point, that judgment will be poured out. We know the seven-year tribulation is is a big part of that. Verse 6, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I love... David's writing this prophetic word, but here he writes it in present tense. I have already set my king. You can read it that way. I've already set my king on... My holy hill. Jesus hasn't even come yet. He's still a thousand years away from coming. And God tells him to the Holy Spirit, as, as far as it's concerned, 
I've already set him there. He's already standing on the mountain before he's even come to the mountain. It's is done. You and I put something on layaway back. That's this is something in the 70s. We had layaway back then. I think it's coming back with our recession, but so it might be back soon. But it was normal when I was growing up in the 70s to have layaway. People would put things on layaway, and eventually they couldn't actually pull it off. They couldn't afford it. Couldn't complete the purchase. Whatever God says will happen happens. In I love this passage. I love both these passages. They're both in the Book of Revelation. Revelation 14:1. John sees, then I looked, and behold, a lamb was standing on where? Mount Zion. What does it say here? Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. David saw it before it happened. John saw it before it happened. God saw that it already has happened because he's outside of time. He's a lamb because... For those of us who have been saved, he's our covering. But he's also our king because it says in Revelation 19, 16, and he had a robe and on his name, name was written, King of kings and Lord of lords. So both the lamb and the king are one and the same who will rule and reign on Mount Zion. Look at verses 7 through 9. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. So we know that the anointed is not just the Christ, but the Christ and the son are one and the same. David understood that. The disciples didn't even understand that at first. They later would understand it. We understand it now because we're looking backwards. But again, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, the ends of the earth for your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Um, obviously, when Jesus was on the earth, and the dove came down and said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. The begottenness, Jesus was not created like the Jehovah's Witnesses think. He was not created. He eternally existed. He was begotten through the incarnation and the virgin birth and begotten and the resurrection from the tomb, both those are begotten aspects of his title. He's the only begotten son. There's no other person. You and I are part of the first resurrection, but no one will ever be, none of us will ever be called the only begotten. That only belongs to Jesus. Amen? Amen. Just the title of the anointed only belongs to Jesus. The son, only Jesus. The only begotten only belongs to Jesus. Today I have begotten you. Today... Again, God sits in eternity, so it's always today for God. He's always been the begotten of God. He was begotten before he was begotten. It's the best way I can describe this to you. Begotten before he was begotten. In Psalm 107, 43, uh, it says, Whoever is wise will observe these things. They will understand the loving kindness of the Lord. Uh, God's going to give Jesus the nations. All the nations are going to bow before him. All the nations. And any nation that doesn't, he will rule them with a rod of iron. And then they will come into full obedience. And even individuals. This will happen both in the tribulation. He'll crush the nations. But then even in the millennium reign of Christ, if there is any rebellion, he'll crush it instantly. But for those that are wise, we'll observe these things and we 
We'll only know the loving kindness of the Lord. Wrapping up here, verses um, uh, 10. Now therefore be wise, O kings. This speaks to this verse uh, as well. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Uh, everyone has the, has the opportunity to be wise. Everyone has the opportunity to observe and, and understand the loving kindness of the Lord. But will we do it? Will people do it? Finally, verse 12, kiss the son. So not just the anointed, it's, it's this stage with this title of the son. Kiss the son, who is also the king. It was normal to bow down before kings and kiss the ring, to kiss uh, the feet. To kiss the son. In other words, uh, when you and I came to salvation, we didn't come on our terms, we came on Jesus' terms. Amen? We, we just... We just said, Lord, have mercy upon... And he has been merciful. And he, he's a God that's full of compassion, not willing that any should perish, uh, lest, lest he be angry. And you do perish in the way, and his wrath is but kindled just a little bit. Just a little bit of the wrath of God is enough to consume mankind. A lot of the wrath, again, will burn for eternity. Blessed are those who put their trust in him. Uh, if I sum all this up, we have to bring it to a close. Uh, think about it. We can bow before Jesus now, and be blessed with his love, and be blessed with his grace, and be blessed with eternal life, or a person can say, no, I'd rather bow later. But everyone's going to bow, amen? It's either bow now, and he's your Lord and Savior, and he's the Lamb of God, and you will be with him on Mount Zion. Not only will he be standing on Mount Zion, you'll be standing on Mount Zion. You'll be behind him, but you will stand. Your, your seat will be reserved, and you will be with the anointed one, or you can wait till the great white throne judgment and every knee will have to bow as the scriptures say in the New Testament on more than one occasion, but this is Philippians chapter 2, therefore God has also highly exalted him and given the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those of the earth, those under the earth, that would be even hell and those and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, the glory of God the Father. You do not want to wait. No one should want to wait and do it at the end of the age if you haven't done it in this age. Amen? That is the great drama of 6,000 years and more specifically that's 2,000 years. Will people surrender to Jesus or fight against him? Now that we've surrendered to him, we're on the winning side. Amen? We're on the living side, and the winning side, use us, and then I'll be doing this again Sunday, so be praying, you know, again, we have a lot more people that watch on Sundays than today, but Lord, use us to get this message to people that hearts could be soft enough to say, that makes sense, I think I see where I'm at, I think I see where Jesus is at, is that I need to repent now, amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the truth of your word. You don't hide these things. You put them in plain view that we might come to you because you are gracious. You are compassionate. You're not willing that any should perish. But Lord, so many don't know. They've been blinded by the God of this age. We pray that you'd open their eyes. And Lord, we would see a revival in our last days. Lord, we'd see many people come to you. But Lord, those of us that do know you, we would continue to grow in our love for you, for you love us. And Lord, we would continue to grow in just being conformed to the image of the Son of God. 
who gave his life for us and now rules and reigns. And we look forward to that day that we'll be with you for all eternity. Lord, as we leave here tonight, may we leave knowing that through you, we've been made victorious. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great night.